In this show, we talk to the futurist Scott Smith, who flips some of the notions of prediction and pushing back at the idea of the future that we can describe as some shiny ideal, to how we think about, eliminate and quantify risk. He gives us many fascinating takeaways about how to rethink planning and preparing for what comes next, or as he puts it, he shows us how to future. Hi friends, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Scott Allender here, along with the always inspiring and future-focused John Gomes. Oh, how are you feeling, Scott? I'm going to say hopeful and optimistic, um, seasoned with a bit of anxiety and uncertainty given our current world circumstances. Um, how are you feeling? Well, I'd say okay, to be honest. I feel fairly level, but like almost everyone I've talked to at the start of this year, there has been some variation on the theme, which is it's a little subdued. Um, I think everybody's mm. been glad, hopefully, to get uh, 2020 out of the uh, into the rearview mirror. But you know, their, their break over Christmas, over the holiday period, has been good, but a bit muted, and it didn't give them the usual degree of uh, of um, renewal because of the lack of variety, you know, it's like a bit of Groundhog Day. Yeah. And connection, connections, particularly in the UK, you know, we really had a severe lockdown just just a couple of days before Christmas. We were all expecting to have a bit of family time, even if it was, uh, you know, very briefly. And I just take that as a very powerful lesson, understanding what, you know, our most basic needs are in terms of, um, you know, renewal and connection with others. But mm. right in this moment, I'm also feeling extremely curious Um as to what our guest Scott Smith is going to bring to us. Um, Scott, with his colleague Madeline Ashby, have just published How to Future, Leading and Sense Making an Age of Hyperchange. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to join you. We're going to get very confused now. We've got two Scots. So, uh, <laughs> I'll just be Scott sub two and we'll be fine. <laughs> well, you could be future, future Scott. And well, I don't, know what, yeah, well, don't yeah. know what that makes you, Scott. Yeah, it makes me uh, yeah, outdated. <laughs> Welcome to The Evolving Leader, Scott. It is so great to have you here. As the name of our show suggests, we are supremely interested in the future and how quickly that future is coming toward us and its implications for leaders. But to get us started, can we begin with a brief definition of what it means to be a futurist and how you came to be one? It must be a fun title to have printed on a business card, yeah? It's a it's a kind of perilous title to have printed on a business card. You know the 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 weight of expectation is enormous. Um, you know I think there are a lot of different sort of varied definitions of what this particular work means. I come at it you know from a, nearly twenty years of applied work, and so I see it very much as a kind of hands on applied um, sort of sense making and guidance for organizations groups, teams, others, sometimes individuals, uh, and helping people make sense of um, what lies ahead of them and try to, to chart some kind of productive and preferable path through that. That's very um, sort of generic because the, the shape and form that takes can vary widely. I came into it, I guess, formally. That I actually got the business card with the title on it uh, in about 2004, but that was preceded by... Um, I actually went to university to study applied languages um, and in the process of that started studying uh, technology and other cultures and became a technology researcher and analyst and research director for over a decade um, in the U.S. and in Europe, basically looking at 
the next after the next generation of technologies and how they would change the way we live. And um, unlike my colleagues who had decades of historical evidence and, and data to go on for their kind of areas of coverage, things like, you know, how people use telephones? Well, we can just kind of chart that over decades. Um, I was spending a lot of time having to imagine or construct in some way the future context that we might live in to be able to then estimate how we might use those tools. You have to first kind of figure out what, you know, what that future looks like. Um, and so I actually moved out of that sort of laterally into foresight and uh, futures in about 2003, four, and have been running my own company now for, I think, 13, 14 years doing this. Hmm. So um, don't take this the wrong way, but um, experts generally, uh, Michael Gove, you know, said in the UK politician, he was like, yeah. Uh, we don't need experts anymore. Um, and futurists have come in for a pretty hard time in the last five years, um, particularly with some research highlighting how most predictions failed. And I think you, you pointed to that in your book, actually, um, which is an excellent read, by the way. Um, and, and reading your book and showing that we need to think differently about the future and uncertainty. Can you give us an introduction to the problem that leaders are trying to solve around the future and how you've come to think or rethink how we should approach this? I think when you step back from it, uh, you, and first thing you need to do is kind of like push back from this idea of the future, you know, the, the, which many people, whether they're in business or kind of individually, kind of conceptualize as this kind of tiny chrome-colored thing. You know, it's a time and place that we're trying to kind of describe accurately. And uh, that really pervades people's way of thinking about things. But really, honestly, what, you're, what, what it all kind of boils down to is risk. And mm. how we think about risk and, and how we um, try to eliminate it, reduce it, box it in some way, and the, the uncertainty that surrounds risk. You know, we can kind of look at opportunity related and separately, but I think a lot of it really does come down to a kind of protective stance of dealing with risk. So I think the, the many leaders and teams and organizations fail in the sense that they are trying to mitigate risk, reduce it, eliminate it, you know, quantify it in some way and get rid of it like you're trying to you know, exterminate a pest in your, in your house hmm. um, or you know, get rid of a poltergeist or something. And I think <laughs> um, you know, that, that's a really, really difficult thing to do. And so by making a prediction you're somehow eliminating that risk because you're filling the, the vacuum with something. And, you know, the first thing I would tell anyone is that, you know, the, the P word prediction is, is faulty. You know, anyone who's making predictions isn't doing the right work. Um, they are mm -hmm. taking shots at, you know, throwing a dart at a, at a target to produce a kind of false certainty at a point in the future. When what we really need to be understanding is what are the factors that are in play that might shape the flight of that, dart projectile let's go with a metaphor for a moment um uh you know what are the forces that are in play um how are they interacting with each other what what elements do we know and what elements do we not know and sort of understanding the shape of uncertainty um and if you begin to sort of understand the shape of uncertainty and what drives risk then you can learn to live with it um shape it uh, kind of use it in different ways and play with the with the open space that it, that, that uncertainty presents. 
So I think it's it's looking at it as a kind of opportunity or material versus a, a threat. Can I just ask you a question around the two words that you've used there, which are uncertainty and risk? Often people confuse those two things as being the same. How do you pull them apart for people? I mean, I think you know, uncertainty is really just a case of of you know the things that we that we don't know. You know, it's a lot of people these days fall into the kind of Donald Rumsfeld rhetorical trap of known knowns and unknowns, etc. But there's some logic to that. You know, he was actually just he was parsing knowledge to describe what you know what we can actually deal with and what we can't yet. And so I think uncertainty is you know is a is a, a state of not having sufficient information about something, not understanding what what causes it, drives it, stops and starts it, etc. Um, and that's neutral to me. You know, un- I mean, there can be a risk associated with uncertainty. If I don't know why I'm ill, but I'm very ill, those two things coexist. You know, risk. I think is um, I think of that as as you know, kind of being more cleanly described as a. Um, a threat of, of something that can destabilize, you know, where we are, what we plan to do, what our strategy might be, et cetera. Um, and risks are both known and unknown. So I, that's how I kind of think about the two of those. But I see uncertainty as being relatively neutral. So I want to hear about some of the tools you use to help businesses there. But what I'm hearing you say, first and foremost, is there has to be a bit of a mindset shift in businesses. So what is the mindset needed uh, in organizations to, to do this work? Um, and, and how do you help them get there? I think, you know, there's, there's a, a kind of cluster of, I suppose, mindsets or, or attributes that are, that are tightly related that I think are, are kind of valuable. Um, and, and, you know, which comes before which, I'm, I'm not sure I could say off the cuff, but I think, um, you know, there's a sort of uh, agility and comfort with ambiguity that's, quite important. I mean, clearly this past year has been, um, you know, a, a, a large scale situation of ambiguity and uncertainty. We don't know what we, how things are going to behave. We don't know how people are going to respond. We don't know what the drivers of certain change are. We don't know which pieces of complex systems are going to behave how. Um, and, you know, for, I think it feels like the first thing that is necessary is kind of becoming loose and more comfortable with that. And that sounds very strange for, you know, organizations, you can't just go in and say, well, we're going to do whatever and be cool with it. Um, But you have to have some kind of um, ability to sort of roll with the punches a little bit and, um, you know, kind of assess situations for what, for what they are and what you know and don't know, kind of back to that uncertainty issue. Um, So I always feel like a kind of comfort with ambiguity is really important or comfort with incompleteness, because then you might be the one who's completing whatever that picture might be. If you're identifying certain bits of information that are coming to light, trends that are important, um, uh, you know, new ways of looking at and framing problems, the first thing you need to be able to do is kind of be open to that. And then the second step is being able to fill in that blank or that vacuum with new knowledge, new understanding, new insight. And what, what kind of traps do you see people falling into in, in the kind of work you do? One of the things we, we, when I started writing the book or kind of framing the book, I really wanted to step back a couple of steps and not just sort of jump into, well, what is the future and how do we do it? It's more a thing of, you know, what, um, to me, it's a very personal and personalized and individualized thing. The future is very much built on our own individual mental models. 
So one of the traps or one of the sort of things that we have to be aware of almost immediately is that, you know, there are three of us in this conversation and we probably have three immediate top level definitions of the future. We probably our minds go to three different time horizons. Um, we have three different experiences. So we have three different expectations of what that future might be. We may have, um, you know, two of us are Americans. Uh, you know, we have shorter historical time scales to judge things by. And so we tend to see time as moving quickly. So a lot of it comes back to, you know, framings at different levels of how we think about time. What do we think the future is? How we, can, how we face it optimistically, pessimistically, et cetera. Um, so that's a kind of backwards way of saying, assuming that your mindset is the same as everyone else's mindset in the room and the assumptions that are driving your decisions and your, your expectations are the same as everyone else in the room. So one of the first things you have to do is kind of back up and, and assess what are the assumptions that we all have here and, and how are we modeling this? When I say future and you say future, what do we mean? Mm. Um, if we pick a date in the future, 2030, you describe it, I describe it. We probably are just going to describe two different things. So getting those mindsets a bit aligned, not necessarily forcing one on the other, but opening all that up and putting it out on the table, I think is a really important starting point. Then you can, we can all agree we're using similar metrics, similar time horizons, and then we can kind of step forward into that exploration. It's a fascinating idea that there's a temporal difference in cultures around the future. So somebody who's in China, for example, who's an ancient culture versus somebody in, in New Mexico or America, uh, how does that show up in terms? I mean, do they see do they see twenty thirty as being nearer, further away? You know, how how does that work? I, so I think you know there are there there are kind of cultural expectations that we kind of digest and grow up with in terms of the you know where we live and and what's important. You know, how deep is old culture and how important is it as an anchor, for example? Or are you coming from a culture where things are changing rapidly all the time uh, and you just have an expectation of a high rate of evolution? Um, and so those are, those are some factors. There are kind of deeper level issues of, you know, some cultures see time as being circular, you know, some express it as being a place in front, behind, you know, so you can go all the way down into kind of psycholinguistics if you want to. But even at a level of kind of one of the things I talk about briefly in the book is monochronic and polychronic cultures, cultures that have that, that sort of work on fixed clocks of expectation versus those for which, you know, kind of the future is there somewhere and, and we'll get there by various circuitous paths. And if you... Um, in particular, when you're kind of dealing with cross-cultural um, uh, engagements around the future, it's really important to understand that because, again, we could be talking about two very different things and never realize it. Verb tenses. I mean, not, not to get too kind of obscure about it, but things like there, you know, there's a there's a model, for example, that some people in futures use around kind of probable, plausible, possible futures. Things that we are, you know, relatively sure are going to happen based on what we know. Things that are um, that could could go either way, you know, a vote or a, a, a product kind of being successful or not, and then the realm of the absolute possible. Those three terms don't translate the same way in some other languages. Is it, or just talking about uncertainty can interject can inject a kind of level of ambiguity that some cultures just don't operate around. And so you can be having you know lengthy conversations about 
this is possible and we're going to go here and realize that the other people in the conversation could be that askew to that understanding. So it's a good place to start to make sure we're all, we're all using the same rail gauge, you know, the same unit of measurement as a starting point uh, and, or can, can understand where we differ. And, what, you know, I'm assuming that you've worked in quite a number of different cultures around the world, um, given the nature of your, your work. How do you tune into that kind of cultural um, environment that creates such a different orientation around um, interpreting the future. Fortunately, some of my background has been in kind of sociological research and, and cultural you know, awareness and ethnographic studies and those sorts of things. And I think that really kind of opens you up a bit to listening, to being aware of what the kind of cultural cues are over time. One of the things I try to do in any new place that we're working is get out and get around in the culture and look at how it talks to itself. What are the messages it uses, not only around, around the future specifically, but just, um, you know, what are the kind of cues of success and progress and those sorts of things. And a lot of that we just see in basic advertising, for example. Um, and, you know, having some of those to kind of calibrate around can be really helpful. We've done a tremendous amount of work in the last few years in Dubai, which most people would sort of look at as being this, you know, a very quote unquote futuristic kind of place where a lot of new technologies emerge very quickly. There's a tremendous amount of construction from 1970 to 20, you know, there's been huge development, almost of kind of vertical growth, similar in parts of China, for example. Um, and there are some levels of the culture that are, um, very kind of futurephilic and, you know, really kind of aggressively open to change, but other parts of the culture that are sort of deeply unchanging and fixed. Um, and it's helpful to get a sense of where those are, as well as just basic conversation and say, you know, um, what, what, what words would you use for this? You know, asking, the, asking those basic questions. If I'm saying probable, when you're saying probable, what do you mean by that? Well, we're using this word. Okay, does that word translate as cleanly? And we actually had an experience of having talked for several years in this environment and having had a colleague who's you know, bilingual sort of sitting in the middle between us, having conversations in both Arabic and English with us and them, with our participants, our students, and really starting to hone in on those linguistic differences. And we had a you know a wonderful discussion. We just stopped right there and started talking about what when I've been saying this, what are you hearing? And you know, that just feels like basic communication, cross-cultural communication. Um, but incredibly beneficial to get at that as a as a kind of deeper point. Man, this is so interesting. I haven't honestly thought about this in quite this way. So building on that, can you tell us a little bit about the framework you use and the tools you employ in organizations to help them understand the future a little bit differently? So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a tremendous kind of uh, variety of tools that various people in my or our profession can bring to bear. I think we tend to kind of look at it as a set of different operations in a way. The first kind of key element is you know, one of the reasons people don't tend to grapple with the future well is that it seems 
very, you know, kind of overwhelming, complicated. Um, it's constantly kind of emitting signals at you. You know, if you've, again, the last few weeks, months, you know, there's a tremendous amount of information coming at us and we don't have any way to kind of parse that. So I think the first part, first kind of thing we do with organizations is give them a kind of framework and a language to start to name and sort those things. What are these? Are they short-term signals? Are they long-term trends? Are they deeper forces? You know, how do you define that? Well, once we kind of have a basic definition we can agree on, you can start productively collecting and sorting information, then mapping that information together, mapping that knowledge in ways that give you a sense of the kind of emerging patterns and impacts of things in the second step. How do you take all of that separate data, sort it, box it, analyze it, and start to put it together to, to generate a picture, you know, a pattern, some set of, uh, of narratives that you can actually understand and then being able to tell stories about it to other people. This is what I see here, this is what I understand, and it's made up of these component parts. These trends are driving this possible scenario. It may have impacts like this, and if it does, we should then do X, you know, the sort of built, building layers of understanding and capability as you go. Um, it can be very complicated, but it doesn't need to be. I think most people have the capacity to do this kind of thinking and work, but they just haven't seen seen the problem in that way before, or sort of seen that those those tools for kind of assembling um, assembling insight into what may be ahead of us. What does success look like when you do this work? I mean, what shift are you seeing? Are you looking for very specifically? You know, I feel like the, the answer most people would, would, would expect is that success looks like getting it right. But of course, we have no facts about the future, so we can't get it right in that way. Mm. But you can get better at observing, noting, um, thinking critically about and synthesizing that information as you go through time, as you kind of progress into the future, um, that you go back to our earlier kind of conversation, you become more comfortable with the shape, the changing shape of uncertainty um, and what you can do with it. Once you get a sort of a, an ability to, you know, it's like learning a language. Once you've got some way of interacting with a new place, you can start doing productive things. You can have conversations, you can order food, you can go shopping, you can go to a film. I kind of think about it the same way. Once you sort of have the language and sort of basic frameworks to, to put it somewhere, <laughs> and be able to think about what it means, then you start becoming more comfortable with um, processing it and coming to new insights and new realizations and then figuring out why you don't know certain things and what you need to understand better. And, and to bring this to life, it would be helpful perhaps to think about, sure. you know, an example of, because you know, what, what comes to mind when, you, when you're talking about this is you're essentially trying to help an organization leadership group to figure out what problems and questions to be addressing now that they're maybe not seeing or not understanding. It'd be mm -hmm. great to hear um, an example of where you've kind of um, shed light on something like that. Um, and, and the organization has responded has kind of waken up to that opportunity or threat or, you know, um, un unknown thing that, uh, that you've. Sure. Yeah. I, a, a, an example, I guess, of a, of a, project that we did a couple of years ago for um, 
probably one of the biggest media companies uh, and also kind of network operators, the cable company. Um, and we write a little bit about this in the book. And the, um, you know, if you, most organizations tend, I think, by default, kind of be driven from behind, almost like rear wheel drive. You're driven by capabilities, financials. There, there are certain factors that are just kind of pushing you forward. So you just follow those or, or legacy relationships or whatever. And so without a kind of coherent map of what might be in front of you, you don't start um, thinking about how much conditions may change and what, how, what that may require of the organization. Um, and working with this, with this media company, we uh, went through an exercise of, of collecting, you know, sensing and collecting, I think, 75, 80 trends across the kind of broad media landscape. Technology, consumer behavior, changing nature, uh, nature of narratives, the whole kind of horizon. And, and beginning to kind of map it out into a, a notional roadmap you know, if we know when these trends may be happening, how certain or uncertain they may be, you start to kind of get a tapestry, a big picture of what the future might look like as a, as a kind of starting point that everyone can look at and begin to kind of dig into. And as you start to kind of identify different possible pathways through that future, you realize, or this organization realized that regardless of the, the kind of variation the path may take, they were headed largely in the same direction, which was going to be um, having to be a far more multidisciplinary, holistic provider of what they do. They weren't just going to be in these individual industry silos of media or networks or um, services of some kind that it all began to blend together no matter which kind of path you follow. And being able to see that and seeing that, that even though the, the trends could be variable and we might kind of find ourselves cracking in different directions, there was a kind of um, a common outcome of we're going to need to hire more people who know how to do these things. We're going to have to deal with the regulations around these services that are, we're going to be compelled to provide. The nature of our business is going to change. They began to see that there was, there was a kind of common future out in front of them. And that the exactly how you get there isn't necessarily as important as um, the fact that you know, all roads led to a greater level of complexity and responsibility. And having that kind of big picture up on the wall gave everyone a chance to sort of look at it um, physically, I mean, almost literally socially, kind of look at it, um, consider it, debate it. And everyone was suddenly looking at a similar common picture. And that meant the conversation, the debate, the analysis was now focused on this common possible future. We could tear that up, start again, and repeat the process, but they were already kind of going through that in their minds of, all right, I see where this came from. I see how we arrived here. I see how you're, where you're deriving these kind of strategic insights from. Uh, now we can take that on board ourselves as, a, as a, uh, a kind of internal process. We're learning how to see that ourselves. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. So something that comes to mind is something that John and I talk a lot about on the show, which is the idea of 
maintaining and, and even evolving value today with creating new value for tomorrow. So I'm curious, from your perspective, how should leaders think about creating a culture where the present and the future are symbiotically uh, working together? I think there's a really important question, and, and it comes back to this idea of um, being kind of being loose and agile and comfortable, and in this sense, also with time, um, you know, that we, we get fixed in this idea that, that and I don't, don't sound too philosophical, but, you know, that, that time is linear and it's all driven kind of by roadmap, product roadmaps and financial, you know, forecasts. Um, and so we, we start to follow those. The, the forecasts kind of become the beat that we march by. And I think it's really important for organizations to have some way, whether it's uh, a function, a space, some kind of cultural um, allowance to step back from that time a little bit and feel comfortable kind of rolling the film forward and backwards, if you will. You know, can we go forward into the future, experiment a little bit, come back and look at now, go forward again. Um, and that kind of agility with hopping back and forth, I think is really important. We used to tell our students in the design school I was teaching in that it's kind of like being able to step out of the film. You know, you see yourself as being in the action as the film is playing, but you really ought to be able to kind of step out of it, mm. let the film go a little bit, see what's happening, you know, forward and backwards. And, and so have that kind of mental agility and comfort with the future, I think is, is quite important because then it, it does become a kind of material you can design with. Mm. rather than a force that's pulling you the entire time. Mm. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's a nice analogy. I like that. Given what, what's been going on in the last year with, with uh, the pandemic, but also with uh, the last four or five years of politics and nationalism and you know, pretty big changes, how's your work you know, adapted around that? What, what, has it changed quite a lot in the last year or so? Well, the biggest difficulty, of course, I guess, is for, as with everybody, we can't travel. Um, and that does two things. One, we we really prefer to work face to face with people because I feel like this is very much a kind of it's a, a kind of social activity. This analysis and kind of thinking is often very is best done face to face. Um, that may just be a personal bias. Uh, and the other issue of not being able to kind of take in as much information about the world. Um, we also write a lot about active sensing at the beginning of the book, and that that's the sort of idea of being on and paying attention to what's happening around you, which largely requires moving. Um, you know, you can yes, you can sit on the same park bench every day and watch the neighborhood change slowly, but I feel it always felt like it's valuable to airports, trains, conferences. You know, being able to sort of absorb what's happening. If I'm ever in London or Barcelona, Berlin, Singapore, getting out and walking and seeing what's changing about the culture is a, a tremendous way to actively sense what's shifting um, and pay attention to that. So the movement's difficult. I think, you know, it's it's kind of been a shock to the system for a lot of the people we work with in the sense that they're, they you know, many of them immediately became unmoored from certainty completely. You know, what's happening here? Are we ever going to start up again? Will we ever work together again? How is this going to change? What does the exit look like? Um, and the the desire for immediate answers was overwhelming in February, March, April of last year. Um, and also the desire to kind of grab for an answer, whether we even knew the inputs yet. 
So that, that has made it kind of difficult. And yet it's refocused things, I think, back on the basics of, you know, let's, let's take this down out of the clouds and think about it as a very simple, straightforward function or cultural capacity that organizations need to have. And so we've seen groups we work with re um, kind of bringing this kind of functionality or capability in at a very root level, very kind of grassroots level in their own teams, rather than just having a futures team somewhere off in campus. Um, and that's been really great because it's showing that they're, they're internalizing the capacity within their culture. So in the midst of this heightened uncertainty, I guess, that we all find ourselves in, are there any sort of trends or patterns that are particularly interesting you right now in your work? We talk a lot about, um, we, well, we've talked for a number of years and, and before it even made sense to people, we were talking about fragmentation and kind of the fragmentation of narratives that we take for granted as a, 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 at a kind of social and cultural level. Social contracts, for example, is a kind of narrative that's fragmented. Um, uh, the big stories that we believe about cultures or companies or, or markets, etc. Um, those beginning to kind of fragment leaves a space for something else to form in. New beliefs, new groupings, new, new kind of drives and, and ideologies and things. And I think we're really beginning to see that a lot of that bubbling to the surface in the last few years. You know, last week in the U.S. was a with the kind of, you know, people attacking the Capitol was a sort of like sudden burst of that through the cracks. You know, you're seeing this, this like new narrative springing to life or, or, or really becoming aggressive. So we pay a lot of attention to those because that's at a deeper level often what drives people's behaviors and, and you know, society or consumers or employees, workers, et cetera. We kind of run on those narratives as we live. And I think it's really important to focus on those, mm. you know, where we might be looking at something really shiny like AI or self-driving cars. We're focusing on social and cultural futures just as much because they are ultimately more consequential. And are there any um, things that are happening at the moment, patterns, megatrends that you think are under acknowledged and underappreciated? One big one for me is um, what we've been talking about is transition shock. And it's kind of, you know, hand in hand with what I was just talking about. So, you know, as we're, if we look across food, energy, health, technology, politics, <laughs> economics, you know, all these sort of huge areas we're going through, we're stepping up to an enormous transition, you know, decarbonization or, um, you know, new proteins or, um, uh, you know, different ways of thinking about computation. All of those will, and by themselves individually, be quite um, disruptive to how we live in the world. A lot of them stacked up together are, it could be tremendously disruptive or, or kind of effective of how we live and interact with each other. Um, you know, I think we already know that we see kind of tensions from climate change and conflict around the world and sort of how it's changing, for example, um, everything from politics down to the, you know, the price of crops. Um, you know, the Syrian civil war is kind of attributed to a kind of climate change as a deep driver for shifting kind of demographics. Um, and even now we see things like climate grief. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of 
hard to name feeling of seeing things change dramatically around you, whether it's forest fires in the Western US, mm. um, you know, hotter summers, uh, flooding, communities moving. I feel like we're not, you know, we're looking over that or past it and not reckoning enough with it right now as in terms of how we're going to have to think about it. Um, it's already showing up in things like insurance risk and, you know, the cost of, of insuring a house, for example, or, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of stranding of petroleum assets as we pull out of oil in the next 30 or 40 years. So that's heavy, but I think those are, those are kind of being glossed over for more superficial things that we need to really reckon with what that's going to do in the long term. It's really interesting. I'd like to ask you uh, for a recommendation. So if, if um, what's the what's the book that you've read in the last, I don't know, year or so that you, you found most interesting or exciting or thought-provoking? Strangely, I read very few books, <laughs> in part because I'm, I'm reading every day all the time, and so I never get a chance to kind of step back and enjoy a book. Of course, I say that, and as you can see all the books behind yeah. me. Um, <laughs> there's uh, a book on my shelf behind me called If Then by Jill Lepore, the historian. <laughs> That's the one I was going to pick out. Yeah, love, and it's, it's um, I have a number of reasons why I liked it, but it was it was interesting to me because I've kind of come up in this you know in this sort of forecasting field, and I'm very interested in the social history of forecasting, and it it digs into one element of that, and particularly um, the both the kind of failed hubris of believing that we can model everyone's behavior, but also um, the kind of early signals is about a, about basically an endeavor to build a company in the 1960s that w could build a kind of you know predictive model of consumer behavior in the US society but it was also that model was also uh, taken to Vietnam and ill applied as a means of understanding the insurgency there and it's an interesting kind of prelude to where we are now in terms of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and you know data and algorithms and that kind of thing um, but I'm I, I'm a fan of kind of economic history and tech history as a, as a way of grounding what we understand about the future. Great. Well, we'll put a link to um, that, uh, to Jill's book and to yours at the, uh, on, our, on our site for the, the show as well. So, Scott, as we wrap up, let me just ask you one kind of macro question. From your perspective, is the future bright? Wow. Um, it could be. It, it, it could be if we make, if we make good decisions. Um, you know, I think history tells us that, you know, things, th uh, sort of the history of civilization is uh, mostly bumpy with some bright spots, but I think there's an opportunity to make some decisions right now that could put us on a pathway that is all those transitions I listed a minute ago, we line them up right, we make good decisions that can really take us in a positive direction. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is, I could talk to you for, for days about this stuff. So this has been really, really insightful. Really, really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Scott. Such a pleasure you. to meet you. Yeah. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. It's a good way to end a week. Excellent. Thank you. That's brilliant. And until next time, remember, the future is evolving. Are you? <laughs>